Did you guys ever do anything special for New Year's when you were a kid? We would, like, stay up super late. I mean, my mom, like, <laughs> post-Kentucky, so, like, once I was already in high school, Sue tried to be like, oh, we have bedtimes now, and it's like, whatever, Mom. Come on. We're in all night owls. Oh, yeah. We're all night owls. Mom is also a night owl. Like, when I was staying at her house over Christmas, I had gone to bed and, like, woke up to go to the bathroom at, like, 2.07 a.m. And Sue was watching 48 hours in the living room. Yeah. Me and Sue are, we are it, man. That is me. I was like, are you okay? She's like, yeah, I just wanted to see the end of this episode. I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why, ma'am? Go to bed, please. Ma'am, if you don't go to bed. Santa's not on his way. He will not come if you don't go to bed, mother. Science. You ready for Betty Joan 2? Are you about to have your mind blown? Because now we're about to get into real shit. Before, it was all like cutesy, ingenue, starlet stuff. Now we're getting into adult ladies, felonies, um, <laughs> conspiracy cover-ups, murder, dare I say it? So like... Man. It's about to get real. Felonies and all that other stuff. That is very relatable stuff to me. Um, I do have some pictures in here for your reference. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, there are a bunch of men, again. Can't tell the story without talking about the trim. My favorite types of pictures of men. <laughs> Menses. So a little refresher where we last left off. Uh, Joan and Betty are now at the same studio. They're at Warner Brothers together. We're talking late 40s, early 50s. Gentle reminder. Betty had met her second husband, Arthur Farnsworth, Farney as she called him, while staying at an inn in New England. She was in New England nursing her wounds because her lawsuit against Jack Warner and Warner Brothers had failed. Betty was at a low point, and this romance came on quickly and intensely. Like many of Betty's relationships, once you got to the actual relationship, things cooled and Betty got bored. Relatable. The LA Times reported on August 25th, 1943. Arthur Farnsworth, husband of actress Betty Davis, died at Hollywood Hospital of a skull fracture. He suffered in a sidewalk fall on Hollywood Boulevard. So underneath here, Brandon, I have a picture of Betty and Farney. I think this is at their wedding, but it might be at another formal function. I feel like Farney looks just like, oh, what's his name? The English guy who has a late night talk show and everybody can't stand him. James Corden? James Corden. Is that his name? Is that who you're talking about? I think that Farney kind of looks like him. If I'm looking at the same picture, I don't necessarily think he looks like James Corden, but he does look like somebody familiar and I cannot put my okay I can't put a yeah. name to it I will of course have pictures of Farney in the show post on Instagram so do go check it out if you can place who we're thinking of let us know <laughs> so Farney had died after leaving the Brown Derby restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard allegedly he let out a blood curling scream before he collapsed falling backwards and slamming his head into the sidewalk yikes yikes he had blood coming from his ears and nose while bystanders tried to help. An autopsy revealed that he died from a blood clot in the brain due to a skull fracture 
previously impaired, meaning he was already hurt long before he collapsed on Hollywood Boulevard. Betty Davis said she had no idea what could have happened, unless it was that time two months ago when he fell down the stairs rushing to answer the phone. Betty was hauled in before a coroner's inquest. She testified again that he had fallen down, but the coroner said that the injury was not that old and that the injury that killed him had happened like two weeks before his death. Ultimately, a jury decided that his death was an accident. Now, I'm putting on my true crime hat and we're about to unpack this <laughs> because there's a lot of things to consider. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't necessarily so I don't feel like this is an accident. So, number one, at the time, Betty Davis was the biggest star in Hollywood. I cannot think of someone to compare her to. Meryl Streep, I guess, but, like, she was the biggest star in Hollywood. Number one. Number two, Farney was a Hollywood outsider and a traditionalist who saw marriage as a lifelong commitment. We know for a fact Betty does not share that opinion on marriage. Furthermore, we also know that the couple had been fighting for months. C, or number three, I forget what I'm doing. <laughs> when, Farney, <laughs> when Farney collapsed outside the Brown Derby, that is also where Betty Davis's lawyer's offices were. There were witnesses who testified that they saw Betty and Farney outside the offices that day. Those same witnesses also claimed that they saw Betty push him. Okay, you know, eyewitness testimony, you can't depend on it. So, okay, I'll let that one go. Next, Betty was the only witness of the alleged fall at the farm in New England, where there was no mention of a follow-up doctor's visit. Additionally, this fall was not mentioned until Betty was on the stand. So Betty had been interviewed by police several times and had not mentioned the fall. She didn't mention the fall until she was in front of a judge for the inquest. Okay. After all of this, despite their long and troubled history, Betty re-signed with Jack Warner and Warner Brothers. So this is what I think happened. <laughs> I'm going to make some inferences based on context clues. Kids, are you ready? It's going to be great. We know they had been fighting. We know that Betty was having an affair with her director, Vincent Sherman. We know that. We know that Betty's mother, Ruthie, who lived with them, hated Farney. We also this know that, that Betty was drinking a lot during this time. <laughs> Every story in this entire episode should be underlined with, but Betty was drinking heavily during this time. Because Betty was always drinking heavily. Just something to know. So I think that, you know, Farney was a tr traditional guy. So if when they're at the farm, Betty's drunk and she's screaming at him or she's hitting him, I don't know if Farney would have had a second thought about slapping the shit out of Betty. And if you hit Betty, now Betty is going to flip. Like, oh, you're going to hit me? Oh, I'm going to accidentally push you down the stairs. It's kind of my feeling about old Miss Betty. Yeah, she upped the ante on that. Wow. Or maybe Ruthie, Betty's mom, who was also there. Like, those are the only three people in the house. And everyone's like, oh, he had a fall, quote unquote. Okay. Wink, 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 wink. Uh... For, me, <laughs> for me, I see proof of this 
in Betty re-signing with Warner Brothers. We know, because it's all documented by the disgusting press, at Farney's funeral, Betty and Jack Warner were side by side. Jack Warner was on one side and her mom was on the other side. Why would a man that she's, a, not even a year ago, she lost $100,000 to, is he now at her side all the time? I think it's because Betty went to Jack and was like, "This is, I need this to go, to, go away. There's going to be an inquest. There's going to be an investigation. I don't want any of that. You need to help me out of it. Which was the studio's jobs at the time. And I bet Jack countered with, I will 100% help you, Betty. All you have to do is resign. And I bet that that's exactly what happened. That's wild. I didn't realize the studios were really like doing everything for actors back in, being PR, yeah. being like legal counsel. That's yeah. wild. Just a reminder that MGM, their head of security was the former chief of police of the Los Angeles Police Department. So, like, that shows you how in bed law enforcement was, is with movie, with movie makers. Like, it's all the same. It's all the same. It's wild. Good old Betty. So, Betty died, or so Farney dies in 1943. By 1945, Betty marries again. This time to masseuse William Grant Sherry, who Betty says that she married uh, she called him Sherry. The reason she married Sherry was because she liked the way he looked in his shorts. And he does look pretty good in his shorts. <laughs> yeah, I, I will agree. Like, <laughs> Betty, she ain't lying. He, he's got a nice little body on him. Yeah, he's a misuse. He's in good shape. I mean, I don't think I don't think he's wildly handsome, but I don't think he's wildly unhandsome. Which is, like, my perfect type of dude. Like, I don't need to <laughs> yeah. be extraordinarily hot or one in. Me like, either. If you the, look like art i'm gonna be nervous around you like i can't i don't know where to look when you're too handsome i get nervous he got some thigh meat on him yeah like his like he does look great in his shorts like i don't really try to agree with betty ever but betty and i are on the same page also i love that he's like a masseuse <laughs> like he is not in the industry so this is the year that betty passes on mildred pierce uh which joan quickly grabs winning her oscar at this same time, Betty makes dowdy, boring movies. The Corn is Green and Beyond the Forest. Post-Mildred Pierce, however, Joan Crawford sort of walks into, like, I'm going to call it her Nicole Kidman phase. Like, she's not the sexy ingenue anymore, but she's like the mature lady. Like, she makes a lot of, uh, what do they call it? She makes a lot of film noir movies, melodramas. And Joan sort of sees, the, or not even sort of, Joan sees a huge comeback. Uh, she makes a couple hits all in a row, most notably humoresque with John Garfield. Meanwhile, Betty's on maternity leave. She has her first child, Barbara Davis Merrill, who they call BD. I assumed Barbara Davis was Betty Davis, but she actually named it after her sister. Her sister is Barbara, but everybody called her Dolly. But they, so they named the kid, they named her daughter Barbara Davis Merrill, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Joan grabs another part that was supposed to go to Betty Davis in a movie called Possessed, which gets her another Academy Award nomination. Also in 1947, Joan Crawford adopts two more children, quote unquote twins, Cindy and Kathy. 
These children were purchased from the Tennessee Children's Home Society. I said not purchased, but I mean, actually, it is. They were purchased. purchased. I chose that word specifically. Yeah, they were purchased. This was not an adoption. The Tennessee Children's Home Society was a business run by the disgusting and soulless Georgia Tan, who sold children to people who wanted children. A lot of Hollywood actors and actresses purchased children from Georgia Tan uh, right up to her discovery in 1952. So like Joan Crawford, I can't think of the, I should have researched this, but like, I think there's like five or six actors and actresses who had tan kids that they purchased. If you guys want a whole mini episode on the disgusting pig that is Georgia Tan, let us know. It's a wild story. Yeah, and just like a quick, I mean, you kind of explained it, but Georgia Tan was essentially like stealing babies that people had birthed and said that they had died and then sold those babies, right? Yeah, she she definitely stole children. And when I say stole children, I don't want to get too real here, but like she would literally go on to maternity wards at hospitals and would take children and would tell the parents of those children that the children died. Like, Georgia Tan's a pig. Yeah, she sucks. Because of this, Cindy and Kathy can't confirm whether or not they're twins. Like, their birth records are confusing. They're definitely siblings, but they don't know if they're twins. I don't know why it matters, but everything I've read about them mentions it every time. (laughs) After the completion of This Woman is Dangerous in 1952, a film Crawford called her worst, she asked to be released from her contract at Warner Brothers. By this time, she felt Warner's was losing interest in her due to feeble scripts, poor leading men, and inept cameramen. Give them Joan. Also in 1952, the year my mom was born, uh, Joan received her third and final Academy Award nomination for Sudden for Sudden fear an rko picture sudden fear is great it stars joan and shocking podcast favorite jack palance wow uh joan plays an heiress slash playwright who marries a low look a low life con man it's a really good movie i hadn't seen it until i did research for this show and i've watched it like three or four times out it's a really good movie really wow nice go for it I was just like, young Jack Palance is strange looking. I don't know what it is. So this is the first time I had seen young Jack Palance was in this movie. And it is like, he looks the exact same, just younger. Like, they just stretched his face out. <laughs> like, yeah. he just, but he's still like severe. Like, he's still severe looking. I will say he looks better evil old. shit <laughs> in some fear. So I think he's always looked old is the thing. Like, even in these young pictures, he looks old. So I think just old is probably better. Yeah, he doesn't. I don't know. I'm not going to talk back about Jack Palance's <laughs> face. That's not right. But it's just like it does. It looks like he's like uh, that cat lady who had all the plastic surgery. That's what he looks like. Yes, or that guy who spent a lot of money to look like David Beckham, but then doesn't look like David Beckham at all. Yeah, yeah it's shocking. Uh, Sudden Fear is on Tubi for free. If you want to watch it, listeners, I do suggest you do. Jack Palance is a bastard in it. He plays it. He's really good. So Joan Crawford wanted Marlon Brando for the part. Marlon Brando was new to Hollywood. He was just making um, A Streetcar Named Desire. He was the new hotness. Everyone wants to fuck Marlon Brando. So Joan reached out to him. And 
she like called and left a message he sent a written reply back saying uh i don't want to do any mother mother son pictures so no thank you wow yikes ouch and no one no one had said that to joan crawford before like uh she took that pretty personally (laughs) but it's just because marlon brando was busy fucking eartha kit and james dean good for you marlon (laughs) ah truly and honestly though (laughs) which leads us into our next topic which is from 1947 to 1955 joan crawford was single and mingling in a big way (laughs) She had a whole Rolodex full of everyone in Hollywood that she would beckon, like, as she saw fit. Attractive men would be invited to her home. There, they would drive her car. She would drive her car to a restaurant she chose. She would order the food. She would sign for the check. She would take them home. She would fuck them. She would send them home. Good. That's a good deal. I, You know... Thank you so much, Joan. It was a wonderful evening. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Honestly, like, back when I was a hoe, like, last week or so, that shit was how I like to be winded down. I'm saying. Like, and you're going to drive? Thank you. Uh, and this was like a known practice around town. Everybody knew about this. Mostly because the actor she was fucking wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. Who wouldn't shut the fuck up about it? Was Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas's grandpa? Is that right? Would it be his father? Is it just his dad? I don't know, bro. I don't know either. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, But he loved to tell the story about his fun night with Joan. Um, In his telling, they don't. When they get home after the restaurant, they don't even make it upstairs, and she fucks him in the in like the foyer. Man, Joan Crawford was just like. She was living her love best it. life. I love it. And she never, like, forced anybody. You know, I mean, there's pressure, probably. But, like, you didn't have to go on this date if you want to. You could tell Marlon Brando told her no. You could tell her no. But if he told her yes, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> you're going to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, during this era, she was also seeing known Hollywood lawyer Greg Bowser. Their relationship was fiery and was frequently on and off. Greg always begging his way back into Joan's bed. Eventually, Greg would leave Joan for an actress named Dana Winter, whom he would stay married to for 32 years. Wow. Uh, Greg's Greg's a babe. I think Greg looks like Oscar Isaac. Is this the and I'm dude sort of sitting, in love with him. Sitting at the uh, table with her? Yeah. Yeah, I can see Oscar Isaac a lot. Yeah, right? Yeah, not... I like Oscar Isaac. I don't like this guy. Okay, heard. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Greg was instrumental in the adoption of Kathy and Cindy. He was the lawyer that brokered that deal for Joan. Uh, He was a famous... Like, he was Ginger Rogers' lawyer. He was was known around town. Betty's career revived a bit with her role as Margot Channing in All About Eve a movie about an aging actress threatened by a beautiful, young, up-and-coming actress. Brayden, have you seen All About Eve? I don't believe so. I think All About Eve is by far Betty Davis's best movie. Uh, but I think it's because she's playing herself. 
My dumbass was thinking, Killing Eve, a d- that show with Sandra O. Oh, that is not what we're talking about. I was like, Why I'm sure also this? good. I bet it's also good. Or I know Killing Eve is also good. Uh, All About Eve is delightful. But I'm not sure, like, it's just Betty being Betty. It won a bunch of awards and is to date the only, this is an interesting fact, is the only film in Oscar history to receive four female acting nominations. Betty Davis and Ann Baxter for Best Actress and Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter as Best Supporting Actress. Wow. And that movie came out in like 1950, like a long time ago. And there hasn't yeah. been a movie to do it. That's Damn. wild. Shit, not even First Wives Club? No, just not even Feminist Opus, the First Wives Club. Which should go on the list, by the way. I fucking love the First Wives Club. I know you do. I know. Much like you love your favorite movie. Um... You're going to say while you were sleeping. <laughs> Ah, I'm gonna make you love that movie. Yeah, I mean it's not it's got Sandy Bullock in it, so I'm halfway there. I could have sworn you in okay, it's the Mandela effect. I feel like you did tell me at one point that you loved while you were sleeping. Or was that the other movie starring Ricky Lake, uh Mrs. Winterborn? Mrs. Winterborn, which I fucking love. Number one, it's got a person named Patricia in it. Do you know how rare that is for me? <laughs> Do you know how special that is, Brandon? <laughs> Second of all, it has my husband, Brendan Fraser, in it. Come on. Oh, and Shirley MacLaine and Ricky Lake. Come on. Far superior to While You Were Sleeping. Fair point. Okay, so July 3rd, 1950, Betty divorced the masseuse William Grant Sherry. 25 days later, she married Gary Merrill, her fourth and final husband. She met Gary while filming All About Eve. And with Sherry's approval, Gary adopted Betty's daughter, B.D. In 1951, Gary and and Betty adopted a five-day-old baby girl who they named Margot after her character in All About Eve. Then a boy named Michael a year later. So, Gary Merrill was an actor, is an actor. I think he's super dead. Was an actor. As such, it was kind of harder for me to find pictures of him in real life. Like, I have this top picture, which is from All About Eve, where he's, like, meant to look very handsome. But then in this family picture, he is less handsome. Uh, it could be hit or miss. I need to, I need to meet Gary in sure. person from sure. then, you know? I mean, because that sure. could raise his score a little bit, you know? I mean, sure. he could be a really nice dude. So he he really helped her raise these kids, and he adopted BD. And later in life, um, spoiler alert: Betty doesn't have a great relationship with her adult daughter BD. Yeah. Um, BD would cut all ties with Betty, but would would stay close to uh, Gary until Gary passed away. So wow. okay, that he was at least a, a family man, which is really nice. That says a lot. Yeah. Uh, together, the family traveled to England where Davis and Merrill starred in the murder mystery film Another Man's Poison, which bombed with critics and audiences alike. Another Man's Poison is also streaming for free on some streaming site. It is fine. Gary and Betty do have chemistry. Like, it is, like, they they do have chemistry together, but the movie's kind of boring. 
1952, she was nominated again for an Academy Award for the movie The Star. Uh, but the movie, it didn't make any money at the box office. And again, Hollywood, Betty was on the out. Like, let's just be real. Betty's star is fading big time. To make matters worse, during this time, Joan started seeing Vincent Sherman, who, if you remember, had a forced affair with Betty Davis at her insistence in the 40s. That ended when Betty proposed to Vincent Sherman, and Vincent Sherman was like, we're not in a relationship. Wow. So think about it like this. Like, the dude you really liked is now fucking your biggest rival whose movies are killing it and your movies are not. That's rough. Yeah, 100%. So during this time, Betty sort of entered semi-retirement where she just focused on raising up her family. During the 50s, she only made 10 films versus in the 40s when she made over 20 films that decade. So she's working half as much. In 1956, Betty started working on TV, which Joan Crawford thought was like, you might as well just quit acting. Like, if you're going to start making TV, how much lower can you sink, was Joan Crawford's opinion. Damn. But Miss Joan would be eating her words, because by the end of the 50s, Joan would be dying, would, would kill to work on TV. So, you know, everything circles back to Joanie. The good news is, so Joan saw, saw this brief comeback from like 50 to like 53, 54. But by 1955, she wasn't getting jobs either. But she would be rescued by a white knight on a corporate jet. Pepsi-Cola president Alfred Steele, her fourth and final husband. Alfred Steele looks like a Muppet. <laughs> like, he's just like, he's got big glasses, like he's older than Joan. He is definitely going to be a safe option for Joan Crawford. Yeah. Hey, maybe there was some love between them. We don't know. I don't know. Here's the thing. I kind of think there was some love between them. Because remember, Joan is fucking her way through every 18-year-old that gets off the bus in Hollywood. So it's not like Joan is a sexual being. Alfred Steele, an older corporate executive, I don't think was a virile sexual creature. As <laughs> such, Joan sought this relationship for other reasons. I don't know. I feel like Joan and Al were actually in love. I do think that. That might be naive of me. Joan kept working, and some of these movies, like Johnny Guitar, would become cult favorites. But none of them made much money or garnered Joan any critical attention. As such, she focused on being Mrs. Pepsi-Cola and traveled with Al as needed. When Al died suddenly of a heart attack in 1959, Joan filled his seat on the board of directors at Pepsi. The Mrs. Pepsi scenes from Mommy Dearest are high camp and are by far the best part of Mommy Dearest, the film. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fuck with me, fellas. It's just really good. It's really solid. My favorite story from this era of Joan Crawford history is the relationship between Joan Crawford and Marilyn Monroe. So Joan and Marilyn met in 1947 on the back lot. And Joan invited Marilyn to her house for dinner. 
Marilyn was over the moon. She was like, oh my God, Joan Crawford is my favorite actress. This is huge. So Marilyn goes to Joan's house. Uh, there is no dinner. Um, there's no, she thought, Marilyn thought she would meet uh, Joan's kids. Nope, the kids are not there. The staff are not there. Joan answers the door and she gets Marilyn a drink, refilling her own drink. And then she takes Marilyn upstairs to look at Joan's closet because Joan's closet is the stuff dreams are made of. Joan takes this opportunity to give Marilyn a lesson about what young, beautiful stars should wear because she thought Marilyn didn't dress well. <laughs> just, just oh, okay. Anyway. <laughs> thank she, you for your opinion. Thank you for your opinion. And thank you for offering not so thank you for the critique. And now you're going to try to help me solve it. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. Additionally, Joan gave her a present, a beautiful black cocktail dress that fit Marilyn like a glove. Now, the, the, the night that Marilyn and Joan spent together, there are a couple different versions of the story. Joan's daughter, Christina, says that Joan and Marilyn started a sexual relationship that started that night. However, according to Marilyn herself... I told her straight out I didn't much enjoy doing it with the woman. After I turned her down, she became spiteful. She really did. Joe, as Marilyn got more and more popular as her star rose, Joan became resentful and mean, taking every opportunity to publicly snide and jab at Marilyn. And these quotes would get into nationally syndicated newspapers. Because, you know, getting press is what Joan did best. And then for Joan, you know, once she got her press, once she got the ink, she kind of moved on to the next topic. But Marilyn took it really hard. Like that, Joan coming after her so aggressively hurt Marilyn. When Marilyn died in 1962, Joan took it very hard. When the press asked her for a statement, Joan admitted that she wasn't a fan, but... But for God's sake, she needed help. She had all these people on her payroll. Why in the hell did she have to die alone? Say it again for the people in the back, Joan. Really good point. <laughs> By 1961, Joan and Betty were in the same lonely boat. The studio system was dead, and television was on the rise. The screen legends were not in high demand. Furthermore, the serial wives were both single, with growing children soon leaving home. At this time, they were even both living in New York, a mere blocks away from each other, both in the East Village, but they never saw each other because they were both working on their autobiographies. Late into the winter of that year, Joan Crawford showed up at Betty Davis's dressing room backstage at the Tennessee Williams play that Betty was slogging her way through in order to talk about Baby Jane. Now, Ryan Murphy's feud presents the narrative that it was Joan who discovered the novel Whatever Happened to Baby Jane written by Henry Farrell in 1960. That is not true. Is it not? I think like many things in Feud it's not, like Feud chooses the dynamic exciting story. Rightfully so. It's a TV show. Like yeah, I love it. Uh, but in reality the idea of the, for the movie came from Robert Ulrich. So Joan Crawford had made a movie called Autumn Leaves in 1956 with director Robert Ulrich. And since then had been hounding Bob 
ever since to find another project for them to work on together. Joan had also mentioned to him that she still wanted to work with Betty Davis. And while Bob couldn't imagine that, when he read Whatever Happened to Baby Jane while in Rome making the biblical epic Sodom and Gomorrah, he immediately knew that the story about sister actresses long over the hill and manic, slowly destroying each other, was tailor-made for Betty and Joe. He sent Joan a copy of the book, and she responded via telegram. When do we start? <laughs> Joan took it upon herself to get Betty involved. After years of trying to initiate a friendship, you know, gifts, invitations, Joan decided that it was best to be direct in Betty's dark dressing room. Betty gave Joan five minutes. And Joan said something that convinced Betty to take a look at the book. I think something along the lines of, we both need this. You're broke. I'm broke. Do you want to make a movie? Let's make a movie. And she would be dead right. <laughs> like, at the time, in this play, I think it's like the story of the iguana or something like that. I can't remember what the play is called. But Betty was the third lead. And everyone was really not enjoying her performance. Like, she was in a really bad place. And by 61, Joan was nearly 10 years post-Sudden Fear. So she hadn't had a hit movie really in 10 years. Wow. So they both 100% needed this. Furthermore, they were both in financial trouble. The death of Al Steele allegedly left Joan Crawford penniless, her words. <laughs> um, and Betty was supporting an entire household, her mother, her sister, and her three children. Damn, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Additionally, Betty's second daughter, Margot, had special needs and needed to live full-time in a group home. Also very expensive. So, Betty took the book home with her, and she thought this could work. It's all there. Phony Joni and Crazy Bet. Bob sent Betty the script, and the pair met. Betty confirmed that she would play Jane. Of course, everybody agreed. And Betty asked Bob if, she, if he and Joan were having an affair. Not because Betty cared about their romantic lives, but because Betty didn't want any sort of preferential treatment from Bob because he was fucking Joan, which is fair enough. Uh, Bob said no. He said that Joan had tried to seduce him when they were working on autumn leaves, but he shut it down and it hadn't been an issue since. Contract-wise, Betty and Joan got sort of... E their contracts were very similar because if one got something the other didn't, they would... It would be a huge problem. So Bob tried very hard to be fair. They both got costume and makeup approval. They also got approval of the cinematographer. So like who would be their cameraman, which was a big deal to them. Uh, Betty got a higher paycheck, but Joan had a bigger take of the box office. So everything kind of came even when it washed out. All that was left was for Bob to find distribution, which proved difficult. No one thought an old bitty movie would make any fucking money. Finally, Bob convinced Jack Warner. He agreed, if only to watch... Old Broads fail. <laughs> old Broads. 
the press were invited to watch Joan and Betty sign their contracts. Knowing prints of the pictures would be left to right, Betty and Joan both fought for placement, knowing whoever was furthest to the right would get listed first, and that meant a big deal to these ladies. They're competitive, competitive about everything. So Betty picked the far right seat, but then Joan stood up and stood over Betty's shoulder and was like, just kidding, Betty, I get first placement. Joan's my favorite, and I love it. Every time she does something dumb like this, I am filled with joy. <laughs> While standing over Betty's shoulder, Joan got a peek at Betty's contract. And Joan won again because she saw that Betty was getting paid. In addition to all the other stuff, she was also getting a $600 a week living allotment. And Joan got double that. She got a $1,500 a week living allotment. And that was a big win for Joan. $1,500 a week just for like living expenses in 1961. That's so much money. Yeah, 100%. I'll take it today. I'm saying. <laughs> but it's, it's always funny that these that they always talk about how Jones broke, Jones broke, Betty's broke, Betty's broke. Where the fuck is all their money? Because they're getting paid, like, consistently since fucking 1928, they have both been making so much money. Like, they must have been spending so much money. So the costume designer for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane... Norma Koch uh, would go on to win an Oscar for her work on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She and Betty worked together really closely to help figure out the costuming for Jane Hudson in the movie. But Joan, Joan and Norma had problems right from the beginning. Joan wanted to be glamorous. She wanted to wear her own expensive negligee. She wanted everything to have shoulder pads. She wanted to have a belt to accentuate her tiny waist. But that didn't really make a ton of sense for the character. And Norma and Joan fought all during production. <laughs> Betty would often put Norma in the middle of fights, knowing that Norma would side with Betty. Like, it was... <laughs> the, the amount of manipulation that goes on would have been exhausting for me. Like, I couldn't have dealt with this on a day-to-day. -day. We'll get more, even more into it, but the movie hasn't even started yet, and this is already a problem. Yeah, I'd be like, y'all need to get this shit over with. <laughs> While there was a lot of noise and attention to the production, both Betty and Joan were on their best behavior at the beginning. They were not friends, but they were friendly. Like, Betty wanted a professional environment. And both of the ladies knew that if this movie didn't do something, if this movie didn't make a splash, they were done. Like, this was the last movie either of them were going to make. And neither of them wanted that. They were both desperate to keep working. The columnist, Hedda Hopper, had the ladies over for dinner. Betty stuck to scotch, while Joan sipped from her own flask, full of 100-proof vodka, that she would just drink straight. Yikes. Like, that sounds like rubbing alcohol to me. Like, how did she do that? Uh, I... I'm not trying to say anybody has a problem, but she had a problem. She's doing that shit. For sure. And it's like, Hedda Hopper is this Hollywood legend. Like, they show up to a mansion. And Joan's like, no, 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 I brought my own. Opens her purse. <laughs> it's her uh, metal flask. She's like, can I get a glass of some ice, please? <laughs> I, I respect it, though. 
She's like, yours isn't going to do anything for me. I think she was like, listen, if I'm going to drink, I'm going to get fucked up. <laughs> but Hedda Hopper was super disappointed that night because neither lady would dish any gossip. But the columnist was sure that that that, that same air of competition that had surrounded these two ladies since the 20s was still was thriving. Competition in interviews, in performances, in their relationships with the crew. Competition in every regard. By the second week of filming, the ladies were still behaving while on set. But each night, they would both call Bob Aldridge to complain about the other. Bob's daughter was like, Joan would call from 5 to 7, and then from 7 to 9, Betty would call. And Bob just had to sit there on the phone while these two ladies bitched about each other. No, couldn't be me. Betty thought Joan was deliberately trying to upstage her. That Betty was serving a certain type of energy that Joan would not commit to. That Joan never reacted to anything she did. Only serving to slow down momentum. I am not an actor. I have never done any professional acting. But I... I imagine it would be really frustrated if you were doing something and the person in the scene with you is giving you nothing. <laughs> like, that's brutal. Yes, 100%. And it's just going to slow everything down. Like, we were going at 8, and then Joan's here, and she's playing this, like, what Betty thought of was, like, a goody-two-shoes, holier-than-now sort of attitude, and she thought it was dragging the, pa- the picture down. Leave Blanche out of this. Betty's makeup as Jane was Betty's idea and Joan thought it was disgusting and distracting (laughs) cheapening the picture so they clearly both have strong opinions about what the other is doing both actresses also had their teenage daughters on set Kathy and Cindy Crawford sat knitting while B.D. Merrill got a role in the movie as the teenage neighbor Joan Wait, had a pep- Cindy Crawford. That is her name, Cindy Crawford. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just clarifying. I think, I think her name is Cynthia Crawford, uh, but she went by Cindy. Okay, just checking. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Joan had a Pepsi cooler installed on set, and everyone watched as Joan's maid would refill Pepsi bottles with Joan's 100 proof vodka that she's drinking yes. all day long. As filming continued, things became more tense on set. Joan told a reporter, I hate this fucking picture, but I need the money. Joan, relatable. (laughs) Right? We've all done a job we hate. Week three of filming saw the release of both Joan and Betty's memoirs. Joan's was scrubbed and filtered, and Betty's, though a better read, was self-serving and flippant. While shooting, Betty would pick at Joan, would try to get her to flip out, but Joan was ice cold and never really erupted on set. When it eventually became time to film a scene where Jane kicks Blanche down the stairs, Betty kicked Joan on accident, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, quote-unquote. And Joan stormed off the set and had to be plied back by director Bob Ulrich. And afterwards, they brought in a mannequin to do the stunt because Joan didn't trust Betty to not knock her teeth out. 
Joan got her revenge when it was time for Betty to drag Joan out of bed. Now, we know before shooting, Joan had gotten down to 91 pounds, which is very slim for a lady, an adult lady. Uh, But for the scene where Jane has to drag Blanche out of bed, Joan filled her pockets with weights and was wearing a weight belt. Furthermore, she made Betty do the shoot over by she kept blowing the shot. So they had to take like 22 takes of Betty dragging Blanche out of bed. And by the end of that, Betty had blown her back out. I think These that's two brilliant. actresses are assholes. <laughs> that's a brilliant way to get back at somebody. Brilliant. After she kicked you in the head, allegedly? No, bitch. Yeah. At the end of filming, Bob Ulrich said, It's proper to say they really detested each other. Yeah, I think that's pretty proper to say. Not fans. <laughs> but I, I feel like it should be noted that it was until this point, like really maybe the the shooting, the uh, dragging out of bed scene. I feel like that's the first act of war from Joan. Like, I feel like Betty has been feeling this feud since 1928. But Joan was just trying to be Betty's friend for 20 years before this. Yeah, like I'm team Joan all the way. All the way. Like, it wasn't until Betty caused Joan physical bodily harm that Joan was like, cool, bitch. I guess we're fighting now. <laughs> Honestly, though, like, what? what's the deal? Betty, you jealous, Betty's insecure a bitch. Jerk. As a testament to these two actresses and to the good story, whatever happened to Baby Jane was a, was a success. Not only did it make money at the box office, but it saw Betty get a huge bump. She appeared on talk shows, singing her Whatever Happened to Baby Jane single, which is a banger, and would toss out Jane dolls to the audience, to different audiences. (laughs) Like, people were eating Baby Jane up. Meanwhile, Joan, playing the less exciting role of Blanche, was sort of just left to play second fiddle. Like, if she got invited out at all, it was just kind of back up to Betty, which was not easy. Things went from bad to worse when the Oscar nominations came out. Betty got nominated, but Joan did not. Taking this as a challenge, Joan went to work. First, she secured a presenter spot for a big award for Best Director. So she literally walked into the Academy Awards office and was like, I'll be presenting Best Director. Here's my uh, daily rate. Here's what you need to pay for. I feel her on that, though. Like, how the fuck are you not going to nominate me for the same movie where, like, the whole reason that this person gets to play this outlandish character is because of me? Exactly. I think that's bullshit. I also think it's bullshit. So she got the Academy Awards people to pay for her dress, for her transportation, for her hair and makeup. Like, Joan's a hustler, and I respect it. After securing her presenter spot... Jane made offers to the two New York-based nominees, Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft. She told them, she was like, you know, a lot of times people can't make it to California for the awards ceremony. So if you can't make it and you win, I'll be happy to accept your award for you, which is a pretty common practice that used to be done. I'm not sure if they do it so much anymore. Both actresses were in awe that Joan Crawford reached out to them. 
Like, wow. She called Geraldine Page, but she went to New York and uh, talked to Anne Bancroft. Anne Bancroft was on Broadway at the time, went to the show and then went backstage and was like, I'll be happy to accept this award for you. And they were both like perfect. Neither ladies were interested or had time to go to the ceremony anyway. And we're happy to kind of let Joan take the moment. But Betty Davis wasn't worried. She really thought she was going to win. She told her two other Academy Awards that she was bringing home a brother that night. She was confident. Betty thought she had this in the bag. She thought this even though no actress had, no one at that time, or maybe very much even since, wins for a horror or suspense movie. Like the Academy likes to ignore horror movies completely. So the idea that she would win a record-setting three Oscars for a horror movie was was a big deal. When Anne Bancroft's name was announced as the winner, Betty Davis felt an icy hand on her shoulder. As Joan said, Excuse me, I have an Oscar to accept. Which is Joan, fucked up. Joan, I love you, Joan. That is perfect. She's like, excuse me, literally pushed old dumpy Betty Davis out of the way. <laughs> walked onto the stage and accepted the Oscar. She had a delightful acceptance speech on behalf of Anne Bancroft, who won for The Miracle Worker, if anybody's wondering. Um, and then she posed with the winners. Like, Joan Crawford was out till 6 a.m. the next morning showing off the Oscar. Like, who won? I think Joan won. I think Betty got fucked, and I think Joan won. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, Joan. Well done. She knew exactly. I love a vindictive bitch. Like, Me that too. is amazing. <laughs> While That's, not breaking, like, any rules. Like, nothing she did was. Do you know what I mean? It's not like she paid yeah. somebody off or, you know, she just accepted a word on behalf of a fellow actress. I love it. Fun fact uh, Betty Davis became the first person to secure 10 Academy Award nominations for acting. Since then, only three other people have surpassed this. Meryl Streep, with 21 nominations and three wins. Katherine Hepburn, with 12 nominations and four wins. And, of course, Jack Nicholson, with 12 nominations and three wins. Meryl Streep with 21 fucking nominations, girl. 21. I feel like she's only made 23 movies. <laughs> like, shit, Meryl. Give someone else a chance. After Jane yielded no further job offers for either actresses, both were panicking. Seeing the writing on the wall, Bob Aldrich, Betty Davis, and Joan Crawford found a second vehicle for them all to make. Hush hush, sweet Charlotte. This time, Joan got to play the bitchy role, while Betty took on the role of producer. Brandon, have you seen Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte? Nope. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is the first Betty Davis movie I ever saw. I saw it before I saw Whatever Happened, Baby Jane. And at the time, I remember being like, whoa. <laughs> like, I thought that performance was over the top. So when I saw Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is 10 times more over the top, I was like, this Betty Davis lady has a real certain style. I wasn't like, <laughs> like that's how I met Betty Davis. And it has had a lingering effect. For the record, I kind of think Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte's a better movie than Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Really? Yeah, I think, um, what am I going to use to back that up? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like sometimes Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, it's funny to me that Betty Davis got 
uh, critical praise for that movie because she is really over the top. Like, nothing about her performance in that movie is subtle. I don't know. Uh, Joan did not like that Betty was the producer now. She thought that only made it more easy for Betty to make, to like work against Joan or to make things difficult for Joan. Eventually, Joan got, Joan pretended to be too ill to work, which caused delays. Eventually, like legal action, Joan had to drop out and was replaced with Olivia de Havilland. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte is good because Olivia de Havilland's great in it. <laughs> like, I do wish we could have seen Joan in that role. Like, it's a much better role. Um, it's sad that Joan couldn't get it together here because she would have been really good. She would have been really good. Uh, Joan only discovered this news when she heard it announced on the radio, which is not Yikes. a nice way to learn you got fired. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Kind of rude. Unfortunately, Joan's star only faded faster. She took several roles in quote-unquote hag cinema, uh, playing axe-wielding wild women. When Joan's eldest sister, eldest sister, eldest daughter Christina fell ill, Joan filled in for her on the soap opera Christina was working on at the time. But Joan's final role on the big screen was the regrettable Dr. Brockton in Herman Cohen's science fiction horror film, Trog, which looks like it should be featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like, that's the level of not good movie Trog is. Damn, that sucks. Really sucks. Sort of rounding out a career that lasted 45 years and over 80 movies. On May 10th, 1977, Lucille Lesur, a.k.a. Joan Crawford, died in her apartment in New York City. Her cause of death was listed as a heart attack, but many dispute that. The day before her death, Joan had given away her beloved Shih Tzu princess, leading many to think that Joan had made the decision to end her life. Like, she was dealing with a lot of illnesses. She had, like, I think two different kinds of cancer that were just ripping her up. And people think she just took a bunch of sleeping pills and decided that was that. Which would make wow. sense for Joan Crawford. Like, she was not in a good place. Upon her death, Joan left most of her modest estate to various charities. To her children, Kathy and Cindy, they each got $77,000. To her children, Christina and Christopher, no financial gift was made. For reasons known to them. Barely a year later, Christina Crawford published her memoir, Mommy Dearest, which would be adapted into a film a few years later. The memoir left Joan's reputation tarnished and bruised. Here, we see Joan and Betty having another thing in common. Betty's daughter, B.D., wrote her own memoir, My Mother's Keeper, which resulted in estrangement that lasted until Betty died on October 6, 1989, finally succumbing to several illnesses, but mostly cancer, no doubt a result of her three-pack-a-day smoking habit, which continued Jesus. until the day she died. <laughs> God, that just is expensive and just painful, it sounds like. Yeah. Both of these women have become known for this feud. The lore and the universe it built 
far surpassing their filmography of over 200 films. So what do we think, Brandon? Um, I would say that, yes, I know more about their few than I do their movies. Yeah. Um, but I did find this to be very interesting. Uh, I am definitely Team Joan based on everything that team you told Joan. me today. Team Joan. Like, I would be more open to Betty's bullshit if I didn't know for a fact that Betty had a feud just like the feud she had with Joan with like six other people like really oh my gosh girl I had to trim I know it doesn't seem like it but I had to trim so much out of the story there was an actress named Marion Hopkins who came to physical blows with Betty Davis on set like Betty tried to hit her like it's crazy it's crazy it's not appropriate Betty had these feuds with a bunch of people all based on very small, like Betty looked to have these types of relationships with people. Like that's the kind of person she was. And it's just a shame. Lame, yeah, I hate that. I will say that Chillin' in Hell, if Joan knew that people still talked about her because of this, she would be all for it. Like, nothing about us doing a series about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis's feud would make Joan Crawford mad. She'd be like, yes, keep talking about me. Keep talking about me until you have no breath left in your body. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> like, if you're walking away from this episode, you should walk away with two things. First thing, Betty Davis, bit of an asshole. Second thing, Joan Crawford loved to fuck. <laughs> Joan Crawford loved to fuck. Me too, girl. Yeah. What else do you want, folks? Thank you so much for indulging dead, messy white people. Let me know if you want more dead, messy white people. If we, you have a suggestion for someone we should cover on dead, messy white people. This is a pocket of history that I love to talk about, and it's been a delight to share it with y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or embarrassing confessions, please send us an email at thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. That's thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thewaybackrecappod. If you'd like to support the show or listen to bonus content, exclusive episodes, visit our Patreon page. Our original cover art is by Laura Strobish. Uh, remember, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow or subscribe to The Wayback Recap. If you enjoy yourself, please rate and review the show, but if that's too much... We totally get it. Tell a friend. Preferably a responsible friend who will rate and review the show. And join us next time. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And on behalf of The Wayback Recap, take, take care, care of each, each other, other y'all. y'all.